0: Alrighty, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Second Samuel chapter 14, title of the message, Too Little, Too Late, Second Samuel 14, as we continue to head through the book of Second Samuel, just watching David and his example for us, at any time that we want to look to the Lord for what we need, we can find it, even in the midst of things in the past. So, a lot of th- neat things to learn from this chapter. Second Samuel chapter 14. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing upon this time that we have together. And we pray that you would speak to us through your word. Open up our ears, Lord, our eyes, to see and to hear what your spirit says to the church. Thank you for the example that you give us, Father, and uh, the things that we can learn through those examples. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said... Amen. So David had committed a sin and he tried to cover up his sin. He tried to hide that. Uh, Ultimately, some months later, God sends the prophet Nathan to him and David is able to acknowledge that he was the individual who made a mistake. He was the individual. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. And so through that, God directs the prophet to communicate certain things that are going to take place because of that sin. And we'll see that like a stack of dominoes just falling in David's life. At any point, David could look to the Lord. He can return to the Lord. He can trust that God will give him what he needs in the midst of it. So last week, we saw an unfortunate event where David's son, Absalom, has a sister named Tamar. David's other son from another wife um, has a son named Amnon, and Amnon ends up raping his half-sister Tamar, Absalom waits two years to invite Amnon to his house for a sheep-shearing party, and he ends up killing or having his brother killed, and so now we're on the heels of that and the repercussions of that. Um, Absalom eventually would head over to his grandfather's territory and hide out there, and he would be there two long years and just missing his father, missing being with David and just everything that, that, that transpires. And so in the midst of that, we're going to see him return back home, but we're going to also see that we can learn from David. The Bible says that, or I've heard it said, that experience is the best teacher, but it doesn't have to be your experience, it can be the experience of another. And so in this case, we can look through the scriptures at the experience of David and we can learn what not to do as opposed to what to do. Verse 1, let's pick it up. Second Samuel chapter 14. So Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. And so Joab is David's commander of his army. He's his general, if you will. And Joab is watching David these two years, and he sees that his heart is longing for his son Absalom. I don't know if it's pride on David's part. I don't know if it's guilt on David's part. I don't know exactly what's driving him, but for some reason, he leaves his son exiled far away, and he wants nothing to do with him. And sometimes in our relationships, you know, we're we're split apart, and things happen, and things are said, and things are done, and... Before you know it, man, time goes by and we haven't had an opportunity to reconcile. And so this is where David's at, Joab sees it and he wants to do something about it. I want to throw something out to you and this is just my personal opinion, my observation. As it relates to the influence in somebody else's life, you and I want to have influence in people's life, I would hope. But as it relates to that influence, understand and recognize that on your very best day, you and I are one grain of sand in the hourglass of somebody's life. There is so many things that are going on outside of their life and there are so many things that are going on in their heart that if that person is not willing to look to God, your influence, as good as it is, is one grain of sand in the hourglass of their life. I think sometimes we take too much credit when somebody's life goes well because we influence them, and I think sometimes unfortunately we beat ourselves up when somebody's life doesn't go well. And I think we need to be careful from those both extremes. Joab here, he wants to influence David. He he sees that his heart is heavy he sees that this is a horrible set of circumstances. And so he's going to do the very best he can, and he's going to make it happen. Exactly what he desires is going to happen. But David's life is going to continue to go from bad to worse because the inevitable repercussions of his life and the choices that he has made are what are going to befall David. And God's judgment has come down on this situation And things are going to take place. God isn't forcing these people to make these bad choices. And if these people would look to God in the midst of what's going on in their lives, they would be way better. But they're really not, and they don't. And so we're going to see Joab influence David. Verse 2. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel Do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. So Joab comes with a plan. Uh, I'm going to go to Tekoa. I'm going to find this woman. I'm going to have her dress the part and play the part of a mourning woman. She's not all dolled up. She's not all done up. She doesn't put any makeup or anything on oil on her face or anoint herself. And so she's going to look like somebody who just lost a son and somebody who whose son wants to be killed. And so he's going to use, he's putting words in her mouth. He's telling her, her what to say to David. And he's eventually going to use this little parable or this little story in this woman's life to be able to help David see that his son is exiled and he hasn't done anything about it. And so that's kind of the plan. I'm thinking he's going back to Nathan, right? Nathan comes to David in the midst of his sin where David hasn't repented of his sin and he tells him this story of a guy who had sheep and he he had a lot of sheep and he steals this other sheep. And so I don't know, maybe Joab sees that, that that worked in David's life. And so he devises this little plan. Verse four says, And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said... Help, O oh king. Then the king said to her, What troubles you? And she answered, Indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Now your maidservant had two sons, and the two fought with each other in the field, and there was want no one to part them. But the one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant, and they said, Deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed. And we will destroy the air also, so they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. And so she just comes, and these are the words that Joab tells her, hey, okay, tell her that you have two sons. They were in the field. They were fighting. Nobody was there to separate them. And as they fought, one of them killed the other. That's bad. That's horrible. But... Everyone else is saying, now deliver this other son because we're going to have it him as well. We're going to kill him because he killed, and that's justice, right? You kill somebody by, by by you know the nation's hand, you're supposed to be taken out. And so we're looking at pure law, pure justice, but she's going to tug on David's heartstrings in this story. Verse 8, Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give, give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. And so she says, I'll take the responsibility for this. Verse 10, So the king said, Whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you anymore. Then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God, and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy anymore lest they destroy my son and he said as the Lord lives not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground and so it works right she gets sympathy from David David's able to size it up and see it and what does David have he has compassion he's able to feel for her pain and she's able to bring him to the place that she wanted to verse 12 therefore the woman said please let your maidservant speak another word to my lord the king And he said, say on. So the woman said, this is pretty bold of her by the way, why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty and that the king does not bring his banished one home again. That's pretty bold on her part to speak to the king, the reigning king in a manner like that. But again, these are the words that Joab Joab put in her mouth and she's bold enough to bring the point home. Verse 14, For we surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. One of the most beautiful verses in all of the Old Testament proclaiming God and what he does. Let me read that last verse part to you one more time yet god does not take away life but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him god will move heaven and earth to reach a life that wants to be with him that wants to come to know him i'll give you two examples i was listening to a testimony on monday and this young lady had a mission trip to Cuba. And there were groups from all over that went to Cuba and able to be able to assemble. And then they would assign them to different leaders and pastors that they would be able to go and help while they were in Cuba. And so she got this one pastor, Juan Carlos, who was going to unfortunately die in two years. He had an incurable disease and he had a, basically a death sentence was handed to him. She said that this man was the happiest man that she had ever met, a joyful man, thankful to be alive, wanted to continue to live for his wife and his kids, but understood that if God was going to take him home, then he was ready to go home and be with the Lord. But as long as he had breath, he was going to serve the Lord with joy. And so through that transaction, just meeting him, it was just a profound thing In her group was assigned a 16-year-old girl that didn't speak Spanish, and so she would interpret for her, and she would speak English and Spanish. The pastor only spoke Spanish, and so she would interpret and go back and forth, and just on this mission trip that she was on. And so she asked the young 16-year-old girl one day, hey, what has the Lord taught you this week? What is the biggest thing that you've learned and um, she asked her two questions. What is the hardest thing that you've gone through and what is the biggest thing that you've learned? Something like that. And so the girl sits back and she thinks about it and she says, I think the greatest thing that God is teaching me right now and the biggest thing that he's teaching me is that life is worth living. And she kind of like perks up and she says, well, what do you mean? She says, well, I came on this trip and before I was coming to this trip, I was going to kill myself. And then meeting Pastor Juan Carlos and seeing his life and seeing his joy and seeing his love for the Lord and his desire to live, he's going to die, but he wants to live. I'm alive, but I want to die. Watching his life has caused me to understand that I need to live and I need to live for God. So I gave my life to to God. I surrendered my heart to Jesus and I just want to live for him for the rest of my life. And she's like, whoa, that's crazy. We got to tell him. We got to let Pastor Juan Carlos know. And she's like, no, no, no. I've never shared this with anybody. I just want to keep this between me and you. She's like, no, we got to tell him. So they're at dinner that night. She's like, Pastor Juan Carlos, you gotta sit with us. Sit at our table. And he's like, no, I'm not, I'm not dressed for this. I'm not dressed appropriately to be able to sit with you. He's all like, no, I'm not worthy. And they're like, who are we? We're just Americans from, you know, we're just good. No, you could sit with us. It's no big deal. So she talks him into sitting with him and there they are at the table. And she's going back she says, tell him, tell him what you told me. And she's like, well, and then she starts telling her and then she would interpret. And then his eyes are like getting big like sausage. He's like, what? This is crazy. This is awesome. Because of my life and my testimony, She gave her life to Jesus, and he he tells her, tell her that if I die in two years, that her coming to God, because I'm going to die, is worth it to see her come to God. And just, I'm like, whoa, and I'm like, oh my God, it's so beautiful, it's beautiful. But that's God. God will move heaven and earth. Take a girl at 16 years old who doesn't want to live and take her all the way from America to Cuba. And I don't even think she was from America. I think she was from England. Just different groups from all over the world come together and this mission trip. So, just again, just a beautiful thing of what God will do to move heaven and earth to reach a life that wants to know God. I think of the mission trip that my wife and I were able to take to the Yucatan and this drunk guy walking in the church one night. And just having this conversation with him. And I saw his face. It it like, it like was like a shadow came over his face. And he went from drunk to sober and accepted Christ that night. He prayed the sinner's prayer to receive Christ. And I just look at that and I think, God, you'll take a team of seven all across the, the world to go to Mexico to just spend time there and sweat. It's hot and humid in Yucatan and just just all this inconvenience and money, but you don't care how much it costs, you don't care the sacrifice, but there was a life that needed to know you. And you took this non-Spanish speaking, trying to figure it out and what words to say. I had a Bible that was English and Spanish and I would find the verse in, in English and I'd go, here, read this one right here. And he would read it and he would go, these words where have these words been my whole life? What is this? What is this book you hand me? He's like just so enamored with God's word as it comes alive for him. And so again, God will move heaven and earth. There's no expense too great for God to find one of his lost ones and to bring them back to the fold. And so that's what this lady tells the king. Verse uh, 16, for the king will hear And deliver his maidservants from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, The word of my lord the king will now be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my lord the king in discerning good and evil. And may the lord your God be with you. Then the king answered and said to the woman, Please do not hide from me anything that I ask you. And the woman said, Please let the lord my king speak. So the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered and said, As you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. For your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant to bring about this change of affairs. Your servant Joab has done this thing. But my lord is wise according to the wisdom of the angel of God to know everything that is in the earth. And the king said to Joab, All right, I have granted this thing. Go, therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. Then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, and in that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him return to his house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his house, but did not see the king's face. That's unfortunate. Joab has influence in David's life. Joab devises this whole plan to be able to see the king understand that he should bring his exiled son Absalom back home. He goes through this elaborate little thing. It works. He's going to do it. David finally acknowledges, yeah, you're right. Let's bring my son back home. He brings his son home, but then at the end right here, what does he say? But I don't want to see his face, and he's not going to see my face. Oftentimes, compliance will lead to overbearing. First, David did nothing about Absalom killing his brother Amnon. He should have intervened. He should have spoke truth into that situation. So again, whether it's through guilt, through just not understanding, through laziness, whatever it is that caused David to not speak truth into Absalom's life, when he leaves and goes to this territory of his grandfather for two years, Joab then comes, and what does he do? He goes to the other side of compliance. And he does nothing. He's not going to see. so yes, I'm nice, I'm going to let him come back. But now he should have restored that relationship. He should have had a conversation with his son. Even if it's, dummy? But come here, I love you. Give me a hug. Right? Nothing. And so what is Absalom left to? He's left to his own thoughts. He's left to sit with that. He's fresh and right territory for the enemy to create some horrible things in his heart. And so that's not good on David's part. I find it interesting that we're going through... um, I meet with Richard in the morning. We're going through the disciplines of a godly man. And this week, we found ourselves on the discipline of fatherhood. And so going through this chapter while I'm teaching this chapter was an interesting coinkidinky that God had set up for us. And in this book, he gives a scripture fathers, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4, the Bible says, and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord, and so in that one verse right there, you'll see that what we're not supposed to do, do not provoke your children to wrath, and unfortunately this is exactly what's going to happen in David's life because through means that he's not supposed to be doing. Let's go to the, uh, what is it, five do-nots. So do not be critical, do not be uh, be over-strict, do not be irritable, do not be inconsistent, and do not show favoritism. David did four of those five. He did the first four. Critical, over-strict, irritable, inconsistent. Not necessarily favoritism, but those are the things that the book teaches that fathers can do to provoke their children. And those are things that we're not supposed to do. And then he gives, he gives a list of three do's. Father do, tenderness, discipline, and instruction. And so that the do's that we're supposed to do as fathers, and that we would do it in that way, and that's going to fulfill that verse, Ephesians chapter six, verse four, that we would not provoke our children to wrath, but bring them up, bring them up in the admonition, in the care of the Lord, with that tenderness and the way we do it. And so just, again, interesting dynamic as I'm going through this, and I just see David, again, I don't know what's driving it. I don't know, like, I don't know if he hears the, the prophecy and he thinks, well, the prophecy is going to come fill, so I can't do anything about it. Guys, any time we run to the feet of the Lord, any time that we need something from God, God will give it to us. So never believe whatever lie the enemy is feeding you. We can't do anything about our past, but we can take this moment from here on out and look to the Lord in our future. And if we've not done these things, either for our kids or grandkids, for the people in our lives that we can actually be a blessing to, from this point on, we can move forward with God's help. And so don't be overwhelmed and burdened And I was thinking about some of the reasons why we in this culture do that. For me, raising four girls with my wife, just kind of looking back at some of the things that, you know, if I had to do it over again, I think one of the big things is, I I tell people in premarital counseling all the time, what you and your spouse agree upon in the Lord, that's what you should do. Be careful when you do things for others because you think that they think whatever about your situation. To be honest with you, they don't care that much. I don't care how close they are, I don't care how, how connected they are, they're coming from a very selfish motive. They can have the greatest motive of all, but it's a selfish motive, it's a self-centered motive if they're not directing you to the Lord and the path of the Lord. If they don't have scripture in context to be able to share in love with you, get what you're doing as it relates to your family, your kids from the Lord, and then obey that because it's very difficult when you're hearing all of these voices and all of these opinions, it's going to be too hard, too confusing. And so in that, I think that's one of the biggest things. As I look back, I definitely would be careful of that. The nurturing, the tenderness, the care of the Lord. And if you ever want to like, I wonder how I'm supposed to do it, just think about how God treats you. And then you treat your kids like that. He loves you, he's patient with you, he's merciful, he's gracious, and yet he disciplines you, doesn't he? He chastens us when we get out of line, but he does it in a way that is so right, in a way that is so perfect. You just, that even melts us. Oh, Lord, you just spanked me, I love you more, Jesus, come here, you, just, (sighs) I needed that, huh? Oh my gosh, yeah, I was a jerk that day, yeah, okay. Moving back now to 2 Samuel chapter 14, we see what happens with Absalom. Now in all Israel, there was no one, verse 25, who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Some about the nation of Israel and these good looking men. Uh, It was Saul who was head and shoulders taller than everyone else in the nation of Israel and handsome in appearance. Um, and when he cut the hair of his head at the very, at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. When he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels according to the king's standard. And so Absalom would cut his hair once a year and once a year it would weigh four to five and a half pounds of hair he would have. And so again, that's a sign of attraction in this culture as it is oftentimes in many cultures. To Absalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. And so Absalom loved his sister so much that uh, he ends up naming one of his daughters Tamar. And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem but did not see the king's face. So what do you think is happening in Absalom's heart during that two years? Anger held on to becomes bitterness. And so he's right territory for the enemy to be able to, again, be in his head. Be careful with that. The Bible says, if it is at all possible with you, be at peace with all men. He's done his part. But now he's participating with the enemy to be able to feed that bitterness, that anger held on to, and it's going to be unfortunate. Two full years. Therefore Absalom sent for Joab and said uh, said to him, Send him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. So he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom's house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Look, I sent to you saying come here so that I may see sent so that I may send you to the king to say why have I come from Geshur it would be better for me to be there still now therefore let me see the king's face but if there is iniquity in me let him execute me I think what Absalom failed to see during this season was his responsibility He did something that was honorable. He did something that was good. But he took matters into his own hands instead of trusting the Lord with justice. And the Bible teaches that vengeance belongs to God. And when we need to make sure that somebody pays for the wrong done, we're taking matters into our own hands. We then have to be willing to face the consequences of those decisions. And so he sees no part. He sees no... He's like, hey, if I'm wrong, if, if I did something wrong, then let him execute me here. We read the, uh, Luke chapter 16, the prodigal son, in our time of responsive reading. And I just contrasted Absalom with the prodigal son. Absalom came home, and pride is in his heart. The prodigal son came to his senses while he was in the pit, eating the pods that the pigs eat, And he came to his senses and he repented. He turned away. He said, I will go back to my father and I will tell him to hire me as one of your servants that cleans the house. You don't see that. You see pride with Absalom. He feels justified in killing his brother because his brother raped his sister. He may have done the honorable thing in that culture, but from God's perspective, it was wrong because he took matters into his own hands. So Joab went to the king and told him. And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. So Joab gets exactly what he wanted. He wanted them to be reunited. What happened? David messes it up. David waits two years. Three years in Gesher, Absalom is. Two years waiting for the king to be able to come and have audience. And in that five years, the enemy is festering this horrible disposition of bitterness in Absalom's heart. Absalom, it's interesting, you know, it mentions that he had four four to five and a half pounds of hair that he would cut every year. His beauty, his hair would end up being his downfall. In four chapters we're going to see Absalom is riding on a donkey and his hair gets caught in a tree and the donkey keeps going and he's now suspended from the tree, hanging. Somebody comes and reports it to the king, to Joab, and Joab says, did you take him out? Because at this time, he ends up kicking his father out of the palace, sleeps with one of his wives on the doorstep so that everyone can see And he is now reigning king while David is exiled. And so you see all of this drama taking place. Joab gets wind that he's suspended from a tree by his hair and he goes and he kills him. And so just an interesting set of dynamics. We see Joab wanting to influence David. But could Joab put in David's heart the right things? No, he couldn't. And David never looks to the Lord during this time. He never looks to God to say, how should I go about this? What should I do here? And so again, we can live in this incredible shame and guilt for the rest of our lives if we so want to. Or we can realize, you know what, the past is the past and I can't do nothing about that. But I can seek the Lord today. And I can find from God what I need today. And I can be faithful with God today with what he wants to do. So don't be like David here. Whatever happened in the past, good, bad, or indifferent, it's happened. And ultimately, people need to take responsibility for their lives. They need to take responsibility for the choices that they make. And God has never failed anybody. And if we would look to the Lord, we're gonna find strength and we're gonna find what we need Two things I will close with. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, the Bible says, Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by this many become defiled. Be careful with anger held on to, because it will turn into bitterness. Nelson Mandela, upon being released from prison, incarcerated wrongfully and spending years in that horrible, deplorable prison, at the threshold of walking out the gate, said, if I don't forgive what took place and move forward from here, I will continue to live in prison as I walk out of these gates. And so we are called to forgive. We are called to let those things go, to let God deal with those things. So that's very important. Otherwise, bitterness will will rule our lives. Be careful with that. The last thing I'll I'll close with is love is a four-letter word spelled T-I-M-E. Love is a four-letter word spelled T-I-M-E. Spend time with those who you say you love. Make time for those who you say you love. Amen? Father, we thank you that we can learn, Lord, from the example of others, example being the best teacher, we don't have to learn from our own example only, we can learn from others, Lord, and so we thank you that we have the scriptures to be able to teach us and show us in the lives of individuals, Lord, that should be looking to you, and when David looked to you, Lord, he was victorious, you guided him, you directed him, and Lord, in this season, we see that he is far from you. And he's not doing things that are appropriate in the lives of these loved ones. And the inevitable consequences are horrible. And so, Lord, I pray that we would start fresh with you. Your mercies are new every morning, and we thank you for that. Lord, may we be the influence that you desire us to be, but the greatest thing we can do is pray. And so may we continue to pray, Lord, for our loved ones and people who have strayed, and people who we have even negatively affected, Thank you so much for your grace, for your goodness. And Lord, help us to look to you all the days of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.